I never know when that song ends. <laughs> like, yeah, do I get up? I ask you guys as a church body just to continue to pray for many in our church family that are sick at home and um, can't be with us today, but uh, just pray for their healing um, and uh, ask the Lord just to restore them, especially those that have jobs to go to and families to take care of. We, we just uh, cry out to the Lord for, for grace and mercy uh, for all those that, that aren't here tonight. We are thankful that we're here online and, and they can tune in via the internet and uh, we have that, that opportunity. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 5 tonight. And um, as we've been looking at chapter 5, we've been looking at the, uh, really the, for the last couple weeks now, the, the spiritual warfare and uh, the attacks upon God's church and the ways in which we can um, combat that and fight against those things. And oftentimes that seems to be kind of a, a downtrodden and, and difficult message to, to think about. It uh, by no means want to depress us, but it definitely gets us uh, alert to uh, the ways that our world is, is uh, so cruel and so difficult in uh, the, the life that we live. I mean, we are constantly engaging in uh, struggle and we are constantly engaging in difficulty in different ways. And so I want to encourage us from the Scripture. And today is an is a encouraging passage uh, from the end of Nehemiah chapter 5 as we kind of see a contrast with um, the opposition that Nehemiah, Nehemiah faces, the battles that they engage in and, and face with their opponents, and then the reaction that Nehemiah responds, the way that he responds to this. We saw his faithfulness, uh, we saw his bravery, we saw his courage, and today we're going to see his compassion. We're going to see his compassion. I've entitled this sermon, uh, Com- uh, Compassion in a Cruel World. And, um, you know, as a parent, in the last couple years, I have, my girls are old enough now that I can, um, I can relate to seeing them go through cruelty and facing cruelty in a cruel world. And so I, I by all means, have to fight against the, the father's intuition or the father's desire to teach my kids to fight back um, when they face cruelty or they face bullying or they face uh, difficult issues in relationships. And, and instead, I have to preach a message of the gospel. And a message of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ, is instead to put on compassion and love and mercy even in the midst of a cruel world. That's what Jesus lived, that's what he exemplified, and that's what he calls us to do. And so I'm very encouraged in this story in Nehemiah to see the very same thing. These Christ-like tendencies in Nehemiah to, uh, to face opposition with compassion um, in the midst of uh, a difficult time. Now, as you probably know, uh, the word compassion in the Bible um, is often and most often translated mercy. And so you're going to hear me say uh, the word mercy or merciful or compassionate because they are words that are really... Um, 
uh, synonymous in, in a lot of ways. The word mercy in the Hebrew has many different uh, Hebrew words that are translated mercy. Um, but only a few, uh, one particular, uh, is translated both mercy and compassion. And we could pretty much sum up all the, the translations of mercy and say, number one, that mercy is founded in a covenant love that God has for his people, okay? So the foundation of mercy or compassion starts with the character of God, that we see in God a love for people his people most particularly, and therefore he shows great mercy or compassion towards them. Now, God's mercy is a perfect mercy. It is without error, without flaw, without prejudice. And so when God loves and when God shows compassion and mercy, he is showing it in a completely perfect way that we can uh, emulate and, and, and try to understand even as we might fail to do so. Um, I don't know if the slides are going to work for me because I'm getting all these error messages. But um, Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7 is a famous passage that's repeated throughout the Scriptures stating that the, the Lord passed before Moses, this is with Moses on Mount Sinai, saying or proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, one of the things that you'll see throughout that verse and, and uh, continuing throughout Scripture is the connection between God's love in His character, God's mercy in His character, and God's grace in His character. And really, we would say that love and mercy and grace are like these intertwined uh, aspects of God's character that really cannot be separated, even though there are distinctiveness or distinctions to them. Like, for example, we would say that, that mercy and grace differ, uh, or excuse me, are similar first because they are an act of God's love. They are his, part of his character and a manifestation of his love uh, throughout the world. Because we know that God shows grace and he shows love to all people, but special grace and special mercy to his people. Okay? And that grace and love differ in the following ways. We would say that God unconditionally gives grace to those who are undeserving. We understand that concept, that grace is given to God by God out of his love for his people because of their undeserving state. He just graciously gives to them. But his mercy, again, acting out of love, is very similar to grace, but it's an act or a gift of God, a loving and compassionate gift of God that's given to people that are undeserving and, and most importantly, in desperate need. So in other words, you might see the idea of God uh, having mercy on us is also God having pity on us. Okay? That's not a negative statement. That is God recognizing that we are desperately in need of His good gifts. And that is His mercy. So God gives graciously. God gives mercifully. And we experience that in uh, most understandingly, in salvation. That Jesus tr transforms us uh, as spiritual persons 
into new, giving us new life, that we are then compelled by the Spirit to also go and show mercy and grace, giving good gifts to people, being compassionate and kind. The best way that I can explain it would be that uh, would be this way. It is an act of grace for me to, to, to go to a store or my wife go to a store and, and buy gifts for my parents. Well, my parents are, uh, are, have plenty of money. They don't need my gifts. They're not in a desperate need for that. And yet it's an act of grace for me to go and, and, and buy them something that I think that they would enjoy and, and give that to them. That is an act of grace. It would be very different for me to say that I go to the store and I buy a coat and I buy some shoes and I buy some gift cards and I go to a a person that's homeless or I go to a family in Bartlett Heights that has a great need because all of a sudden sudden now I'm not just being gracious but I'm uh, meeting a particular need which is merciful. It's merciful. And what we see here in particular is in our passage today is that Nehemiah showing this Christ-likeness for us is showing compassion, grace, and mercy in his relationship with the people in Judah. Now we look in verse 14, and just for a little bit of context, we learn some historical information that's helpful for us. In verse 14 it tells us that Nehemiah, from the time that he was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, therefore we learn that Nehemiah was governor for 12 years in Judah. For, for historians, that would be around 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. And we learn in Nehemiah chapter 13 that after that 12 years ended, Nehemiah goes back to the city of Susa in the Persian capital and he serves there under Artaxerxes again and then returns for an undetermined amount of time, finishing up Nehemiah chapter 13. So at at the end of chapter 12, that's the first visit of Nehemiah and the work of of the Jews. And then in chapter 13, that's Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem to handle some issues that are going on among the people again. And then we leave Nehemiah historically in uh, that state. So how can we learn some lessons or some observations about compassion from this story today? Well, number one, and again, uh, if if they're not on the screens, I'm going to make it real clear for you. Number one, we want to talk about a matter of providence. A matter of providence. And if if we jump back a couple verses in chapter 5, verse 10, if we think back to our story last week where uh, Nehemiah is, is battling this sin that's entered the camp. He is fighting the, the, the inward conflict of uh, his brothers in Judah, where they are, he's seeing the nobles take advantage, financial advantage, of, the, uh, of their own brothers and sisters in the faith. There in the community, this Jewish community, the nobles rose up in a great famine and a great time of suffering and difficulty, and he sees the nobles uh, basically exploiting these people that he's, they're supposed to love. And we talked last week about the great need for Nehemiah as a leader to stand up against sin, to fight against it, to confront it, and to bring or, or seek some form of reconciliation. 
But notice chapter 5, verse 10. And I didn't spend a lot of time on this last week purposely so I could deal with it this week. It says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So, right there on the front end, we learn that in the midst of this conflict, not only is Nehemiah confronting the sin, and he's trying to reconcile the sin among his brothers, but he is trying to be a source of help in the time of need. He's showing compassion. He's willing to stand in the gap and say, not only are you guys doing wrong, but let me use my own funds. Let me do whatever is necessary at my own expense so that my brothers don't go hungry. And there we see Nehemiah and other brothers stepping in to be aid and to give aid to those who are in great need and finding great difficulty. Now we jump down to chapter 5 or chapter 5 verse 12 we can be reminded that uh, excuse me verse 14 we can be reminded that um, as i stated that nehemiah was appointed to this position as governor we will learn uh, in a few moments we will learn about uh, some of the other governors that existed and that ruled during this time of judah's return uh, to jerusalem But what what I want us to focus on in the fact is that Nehemiah is using this appointment, this opportunity that God has given him by his sovereign hand appointing Nehemiah to be governor. He's using it not only to reconcile the differences of the brethren, but to bring some aid and some compassion to a difficult situation. This is God's providence. That for 12 years, God specifically placed Nehemiah in this moment to be a source of compassion and care when all other people around them were being corrupt and exploiting the weak. God put Nehemiah there. And he provided Nehemiah an opportunity to do the right thing. To stand and, and if you've ever stood in a stream with a raging current, and just tried to stand there, you understand the force and the power that pushes against your legs. Nehemiah is standing in the midst of a very difficult situation, doing very opposite of what his noble leadership were doing. He was being the source of compassion in the midst of corruption and cruelty. And why? Because he was taking advantage of the opportunity that God had providentially given him. God, in His providence, works all things according to His purposes and plan. It was no accident that Nehemiah had been put there. It was no accident that Joseph had been put in Egypt. And it was no accident that God allowed Moses to be rescued so that Moses could be the, the, the pseudo-savior for the Egyptians out of slavery. It was no accident that God had given uh, Daniel the strength to overcome uh, the persecution of, uh, of a man in exile or, or Esther to help rescue. It's, these are no accidents. These are acts of providence. God placing people for such a time as this to accomplish His purposes. And so our verses today remind us that as God is raising up these people, He's doing so so that we stand in the gap, we stand against a cruel world, and in doing so, we reflect the compassion and the mercy of God by loving people in the midst of cruelty. 
God had providentially placed Nehemiah where he was, but he also providentially had made Nehemiah very wealthy and given him the resources so that he could be compassionate. Now, let me be clear. You don't need wealth to be compassionate, but you must acknowledge that the wealth that you have is given by God so that you can be compassionate. That money belongs to God. The resources you have belong to Him. And they're a resource in which you can be used to glorify His name in your merciful and compassion acts for those who are in need. Look down to verse 17 and 18. We see the great wealth acknowledged by uh, Nehemiah. He says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all the kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people." Now, if you take a moment and, 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 and say, okay, for 12 years, every day, there was an ox and, and she, a, a sick sheep supplied in order to feed people at the table of Nehemiah, at Nehemiah's own expense, you begin to understand that that totals up to 4,300 oxen and 26,000 sheep that are slaughtered at the expense of Nehemiah so that he might show compassion and care. Nehemiah wasn't going to use the tax tax money that had been uh, drawn from the people. He wasn't going to be a heavy burden on the people to to feed these uh, dignitaries and others that might come and sit at his table, this, uh, this group of nobles and leaders in the Jewish community. No, instead, Nehemiah says, I'll do it at my own expense so that I'm not a burden to the people. So that I might show compassion. Why? Because God had providentially not only placed Nehemiah in the position to do so, but God gave him the resources to do it. And for that, God received the glory. And so we must understand that in God's providence, He places us in positions to be compassionate to others. Your leadership role at work, your place in the community... You have an opportunity in your family, in other relationships that you might have. Whatever sphere God has placed you, He has hemmed you in, He has set your boundaries, He has filled your coffers, He has allowed you to have the things that you need so that you might glorify His name in acts of compassion and mercy. Where are the people around you that are in need? How can you help them? What gifts and resources has God blessed you with? And it's easy for us to to think about a lot of different examples. My mind kept going to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, God uh, providentially um, shares this story with us that once again is is a a, a challenging and and very familiar passage, especially um, to our young children as they learn this story. It's the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where again, once... Uh, Again, Jesus tells this story of this good Samaritan who is providentially placed in the exact moment to show love and compassion in a very unexpected way. 
showing love to a complete stranger, a social enemy, going out of his way to be a source of help and care after his brothers ignored and passed by, not wanting to help this beaten and half-dead man, as the Scriptures say. That is how God's providence works in our lives. So it's a matter of providence. Secondly, it's a matter of sacrifice. It's a matter of sacrifice. In chapter 5, verse 16, Nehemiah makes a pretty clear statement. I, pers- I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. When you take chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, and 17, and 18, when you understand the great wealth of Nehemiah, when you, have the, when you understand the, 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 the circumstances that surrounded the situation, where literally people were so desperate for food, as we talked about last week, that they were mortgaging any land that they owned, they were selling their sons and daughters into slavery, they were desperately hungry and desperately in need, and there Nehemiah is a man of great wealth, and, and, and as the governor could have easily taxed the people and, and been a a participant in the laboring of and the heavy loading of these people, but instead he shows generosity and compassion to them. But notice in verse 16, he also faithfully continues the work on the wall and acquires no land. Now that's important because in this moment, an entrepreneurial heart, an entrepreneurial spirit would say, Hey, this is a great opportunity for me to do what? To increase my wealth. These people are selling off all this land. I'm going to fill up my coffers even more. I'm going to take advantage of the, 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 the needs of these people. And in doing so, make myself, boast myself, grow myself and my, my own portfolio. And Nehemiah does the exact opposite. He keeps his head down to the plow. He continues to do the work. He doesn't take advantage of his brothers, nor does he try to use the opportunity to increase his own stature and his own wealth. Because what we have to understand about compassion and mercy is that when we display a compassion and display a merciful heart, we must understand that it's a matter of sacrifice. That in our compassion and in our mercy, we must be willing to lay down something to be a benefit for other people. I mean, that is, the, that is depicted greater in Nehemiah. That is depicted in Jesus. The greatest example of laying down something of great value so that others might be blessed. Not asking anything in return, but unconditionally and graciously and mercifully Coming to those who are in need and saying, I will lay down my very life so that you might be benefited with salvation and a relationship with me. This is what it takes. Compassion is about a matter not only, not only of providence and what God is doing, but of sacrifice and how we respond to God's providence. Will we be willing to lay something down of value to be a blessing and show kindness and love to other people. Now notice the contrast in verses 15 and 16. The former governors, the former governors who were before Nehemiah, he says, 
laid down heavy burdens on the people. They took for them daily rations, 40 shekels of silver, it says. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But Nehemiah says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. I persevered in the work on the wall. We acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered for the work. Now, as we, as I read and, and study through these things, it's, it's, it's astounding as, as you come across different uh, discoveries and things that are made that, that solidify God's word. And, 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 and if you've never studied biblical archaeology, biblical archaeology is a, is a bedrock foundational tool to understand God's word. The more they dig in the ground, the more archaeologists find proof and security and, and, and truth about the word of God being true. And this is another example. There, were, there has always been critics uh, about these passages in particular, about these so-called governors uh, in Judah after the exiles returned. And it was in the 70s, the 1970s, that, that clay vessels were unearthed uh, with imprints talking specifically about the rulers and the governors of Judah during this time, listing six governors, including men like uh, Sheshbabar, that, that it's mentioned in Ezra, and Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah, Elnathan, and, and others that are mentioned in Scripture, with others uh, governors mentioned that are not in Scripture, that fill in the gaps, six total governors, between the uh, beginning of the exiles returning to Nehemiah, documenting the truth, not only of, of, of who Nehemiah is talking about, but giving us some picture of these tyrannical rulers that were taking advantage of the people's struggle. They weren't willing to sacrifice. They weren't willing to lay anything down to help others. They wanted to profit from their suffering. And this is what the enemy does. The enemy wants us to take advantage of others who are down, Christ represents those as the one who was willing to sacrifice those for those who are down in desperate need. And so I go back to Luke chapter 10, the, the story of, uh, of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and again find some great illustration and great uh, foundational truth behind this when we think about Luke chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. This Good Samaritan, again, providentially placed where he needs to go, to help who he needs to help. And what was he willing to do when he got there? He was willing to make a great sacrifice. We know this story. He went to this, uh, this beaten Jewish man laying on the ground. This good Samaritan who's an enemy of the Jews and a, uh, an opponent to them. They hated each other and yet he saw with compassionate eyes the great need that was there and the scripture tells us that he went to him and he binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He sets him on his own animal, bringing him to an end and, and he took care of him. He stays with him. He nurses him and... and treats his wounds. And the next day, it says, he takes out two denarii, which is two days' wage, and he gives them to the innkeeper. And he says, hey, take care of him for me, and whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I get back. And again, we see 
this Christ-like example of great sacrifice in which we lay down things that are great to us and that are a, a, a treasure to us in order that we might care for others. Going out of our way. This treating of the wounds. Using your own resources and your own expenses as the Good Samaritan did. Using his own oil and his own wine. Perhaps using his own clothes to, as a dressing for the wounds. Putting him on his own animal, transporting him to a safe place. And then paying for continual care. Total stranger. Loving with compassion and mercy. This is what Christ compels His followers to, to accomplish on this world. To understand as we read in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was the one who was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. I love to think about the fact that Jesus Christ, with His death upon this cross, with His resurrection, there He is binding up my wounds with His mercy. Binding up my wounds with His grace and love. Willing to lay down sacrificially what belonged to Him, His own very life, so that I might have peace and be healed. And so therefore, Christ compels us to think about the position in which we live in this world, the providence that God has uh, established where we are, and, and to think about the resources that have been given, and, and in doing so, consider how we might be a help to those in need that even might be a sacrifice for us. Church as Americans, we've gone through a difficult economic time here in the States in the last two years, and we are still the wealthiest people in the world. The wealthiest people. We have so much at our disposal, so much to help others. And with little or with much, may God compel us in faith to be a blessing to those, to meet the needs of those that are desperately hurting and suffering around us. Number three, it's a matter of faith. It's not only a matter of providence, a matter of sacrifice, but it's a matter of faith. Nehemiah brings all this back to why he does this. In verse 15 of chapter 5, as he's laying out his commitment to do what God had called him to do, in contrast to these enemies, these tyrants that had ruled before him, he simply says this, I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord, or the fear of God. Fear of God in in the Old Testament perspective, is faith in God. To fear the Lord is to have faith in Him. Is to trust Him. To understand a covenant relationship with God and, and therefore to, to honor Him and have reverence for Him in all that He is. Nehemiah held the very uh, nobles in Jerusalem to be accountable to that covenant relationship with God when he says in chapter 5, verse 9, this thing that you are doing, this exploitation that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, our enemies? Again, understanding that fear of God is faith in God and that, that these Jewish nobles should have 
lived as they had committed their lives to do, fearing God and walking in His commandments. And so he holds them accountable to what the Word of God says. He says, do you have this faith that you so-called claim? And if so, then aren't you, are you walking in that faith? Are you trusting in God and living for Him? No, he says the things you are doing are not good. And then in verse 19 of chapter 5, again, reclaiming or recalling his faith in God, he simply says, God, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. The fundamental principle in our compassion has to start with our relationship with God. It has to start, it must flow from a genuine faith in Him. We, we understand that a, a lost world shows compassion. A lost world shows generosity and benevolence. But it's an incomplete compassion. It's a, it's a compassion that our children might show in the same manner that they, say, they see us show compassion when they're young and they don't understand yet why they should be so compassionate. But yet when their minds are opened in in the eyes of faith to believe in God, then no longer are they mimicking compassion that they might see others do. Now they understand why it's important because they understand the compassion that Jesus has shown to them. And therefore they understand the foundation behind the action. And so our compassion starts with faith. And church, let me just tell you that compassion is the litmus test for our faith. It's the barometer. It's the very thing that reveals to us, or if I could say in a, in a, in a more contemporary context, it's our COVID test for faith. Sorry, I had to go there. It reveals to us what is true and what is not true, what is genuine. In other words... When we read in Matthew chapter 22, the greatest commandment summarized by Jesus, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, what are these? Combined into one action. Yes, we must first love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, faith is the foundation for how we love other people. And can you love other people without faith? Absolutely. But it's an incomplete compassion. But when you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, when you have been uh, transformed and dramatically changed by the great understanding of His love for you and the rescue that He has given you, then you understand And know why you must be compassionate and merciful. You see the great need that you had and Jesus swoops in as a rescue and therefore you see people's need in a greater way. But allow compassion to be a litmus test for you. Be reminded of 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
And in the negative, those who do not love, those who do not show compassion toward their brothers and sisters and all of humanity have not been born of God. It's inerrant in the very work of the Spirit of God manifesting the characteristics of God within us. But let me also warn you that faith is the foundation for compassion. And we can be compassionate people. We can go out in the world and and, and show love to people and show kindness to people. But let me also warn us that we, even as believers who struggle in sin, should always check our motivations for, for compassion. Because even our motivations can be askewed as we show love to others. Consider the temptation to serve others with compassion with the wrong motives. That at any moment, our compassion needs to be checked for authenticity. We can, we can serve with compassion the needs of others, but is our love of God the reason we're doing so? I mean, you can serve others to glorify yourself, to get the praise of men. You can serve others just to occupy your time, to, to pad your resume, to, to uh, impress the, the masses. All those actions are simply acts of self. And if we're honest with ourselves, church, we could say that it's easy to step into that. So be compassionate people, but be warned and know that your compassion is about a way to serve and worship the God in which you fear and love. Lastly, And just simply, compassion is about a matter of hospitality. It's a matter of providence, a matter of sacrifice, it's a matter of faith, and lastly, hospitality. And I couldn't couldn't get over the fact that, that in the midst of Nehemiah facing such a great and turbulent, um, opposition to the work that he had done in the, in the city of Jerusalem. Just like our friend Ezra, who also did a great work by the mercy and grace of God, facing great opposition from his opponents, we see Nehemiah showing great hospitality to the stranger. Great hospitality to the stranger. Again, if we go down to verse 15, excuse me, verse 16, he says, I persevered in the work on the wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, we can read that two ways. You can read that as, well, that was Nehemiah's job to entertain the dignitaries. But those nations that were around them, we know from history and from Scripture that they were the ones that were warring against them. So in other words, Nehemiah is sitting at the table with his enemies, entertaining them, feeding them, caring for them, showing hospitality to them. If you're not aware of this, hospitality literally means, if you break it down in a compound word, 
It literally means in the Greek, the love for stranger. That's what it means. It's the love for the stranger. Which is exemplified in the story of the Good Samaritan. Which is exemplified most importantly in the, in the work of Christ upon the cross. And here we see Nehemiah extending compassion, showing mercy, not only to only his brothers and sisters, not only to those nobles sitting around the table, but also to those who were in the surrounding nations around him. These ones who had warred against him, and yet he was showing love to them, feeding them on his own dime, out of his own expense, I would say, for the glory of God. And so the challenge for us as the church is to love all people. This is the purpose in which Jesus was trying to teach the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because there was such a prejudice and a distinction as to who they had to show love to. It was, it was socially acceptable to hate a certain group of people Because they were different than them. Jesus wanted to put a stop to that and said, we are to love all people. We are to show love and compassion to all people. We're to sacrifice uh, the, the, the blessings that we might have for the sake of helping all people, no matter what they look like, no matter who they might be, where they're from, what they've done to us, because that is the story of God's love for His people in this world. Compassion for the stranger, mercy upon their lives, undeserving grace in Jesus Christ. So as we leave here today, my prayer is that you would apply these things to the spheres of worship for you. How might you show this love, this compassion, this mercy to those around you? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for the great work that you have done to show great mercy and love toward us. What a privilege it is to study this book and to see the authority and the power of the Word of God bring up such important lessons for your people. God, we live in a world that seems so very similar to Nehemiah's day. We are people in an exiled way, God, living to, that are surrounded by us, uh, these strangers. The Bible calls us sojourners and pilgrims, Father, and we feel that way. And Lord, if we're honest, we would admit that at times it's easier to be inclusive or reclusive in our own little communities, being willing to 